Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger is joined by historian Dr. Gene Copelson. Dr. Copelson has written on a number of topics ranging from Theodore Roosevelt's Great White Fleet to Washington State Republican politics. Most relevant to this podcast, he is the author of Reagan's 1968 dress rehearsal, Ike, RFK, and Reagan's emergence as a world statesman. When not researching and writing history, Dr. Copelson is a Florida cancer physician. Roger and Dr. Copelson discuss President Eisenhower's mentorship of Ronald Reagan in number 40's first presidential campaign. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to the show, wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Dr. Gene Copelson, welcome to the show. Thank you very, very much, Roger. Well, you are a doctor. Now, many doctors we have on the show are doctors with uh, PhDs. I've been a matter of controversy these days, whether or not we acknowledge or should start with uh, calling them uh, doctors who have PhDs. But uh, you are uh, a medical doctor. Uh, so uh, apparently there's no dispute over whether we should uh, call you Dr. Copelson. Fair enough. Thank you. Um, but you are a doctor who has written uh, a comprehensive study of President Reagan, and in particular, President Reagan's relationship with President Eisenhower, uh, with a focus on the years where President Reagan uh, was governor in California, the years leading up to it, uh, and a little bit after. Uh, Dr. Culpeson, how does one medical doctor uh, come to write uh, this uh, volume on President Reagan? Is that the natural course for medical doctors? Well, obviously not given how busy a physician is in his, his or her career. I had made a change in mine uh, about 15 uh, years ago that I no longer uh, was a full-time director of a cancer center because I wanted to do some things outside of medicine. And history was all, always my favorite subject after science. And uh, uh, this began when I read a few books about early Reagan, his early campaigns. And in one of the books uh, uh, from Craig Shirley, who of course you know very, very well, Craig said that he wanted to write a book about Reagan's first quest for the presidency. And he wrote about 1976. And he mentions 1968 in a brief sentence saying, well, he did run for the first time in 1968, but that sort of doesn't count. So I said to myself, well, Mr. Shirley, who I didn't know at that point, that doesn't make any sense. And I started to delve into the first time uh, Reagan runs for the presidency and that uh, because I was not in full-time practice anymore, I was a part-time physician, which I still am. I cover for vacationing doctors in different parts of the country. That allowed me the time to do interviews with Reagan's campaign staff from 68, whose stories have never been told before, to visit the Eisenhower Presidential Library, where the Reagan files there have never been looked at before, and piecing things together. Uh, and I had the time to do this before I made that change in my practice. I never would have had the time to do anything like this at all. Well, as, as uh, 
Reagan enthusiasts, uh, admirers, we're grateful for uh, the time you've devoted to studying this very important uh, chapter in, in President Reagan's uh, uh, public life. Um, but yet the book focuses on Eisenhower, uh, and that, that's the recurring theme. So there's, it's not just about President Reagan's uh, not well-known run for public office, run for the presidency in 68, but it's also about the, the relationship between Ike and Reagan. It's interesting to me that you arrived at this focusing on kind of out of reading a Craig Shirley Reagan biography, but was there a particular attachment you had to President Eisenhower as well? Well, doing the research for Reagan's first run, which is what I thought the whole focus of my research and book would be, and it is, it does occupy about 40 to 50% of the story. Uh, there was one footnote, I believe it was in a Chiron Skinner book, I, I don't recall at the top of my head, that said, one should look at a certain file at the Eisenhower Presidential Library, there may be more there. And I went there for research, and sure enough, that was a treasure trove of information about the Reagan-Eisenhower relationship. At the time, I had sent away for audio clips from the Reagan Presidential Library of all of Reagan's out-of-town speeches during 1966 through 1968. He gave, of course, many, many speeches as governor of California during this first run for the presidency. But because Lou Cannon had written a wonderful book about the, the governorship years of Reagan, uh, I concentrated on these out of state speeches. And Reagan gave wonderful speeches. They tended to be the same thing in front of different audiences, talking about his successful downsizing of state government. But he was running for the presidency and he wanted to bring these small government solutions to Washington. But I then listened to press conferences. And during the press conferences, the press asked Reagan virtually always about foreign affairs and Reagan constantly was bringing up Eisenhower. And that intrigued me, but then going to the Eisenhower library, I was able to piece this all together, how he had been advised by Dwight Eisenhower during his first run, uh, not only for the governorship, but even to enter politics. And I can discuss that in more detail if you'd like. And I then uh, pieced it all together uh, all the four meetings that the two of them had that history has really never discussed before. These long and, meetings, these long sessions. Uh, you know, correct. And, and so you, the epilogue that I have in my book, even though my book actually ends with the 68 convention, I have a long epilogue of the continuing influence of Dwight Eisenhower during Reagan's presidential years, which continued unbeknownst to any other historian. I, 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 I'll pat myself on the shoulder until I, I put that all together. Um, uh, fascinating. Um, well, just to kind of dive in a little bit more into what was going on in context for, for our listeners and viewers, um, you know, Reagan only came into office in California's governor was in 67 when he, he, he took, took his seat. Um, and already within a year, uh, as your book lays out and describes, he is running for president, but it's not the typical run, right? This is, this is not someone who, uh, you know, has the, um, um, you know, press conference going down the escalator and tell everybody he's running for president. It was somewhat unusual. Take a couple of minutes to describe the environment uh, and the manner in which Reagan uh, used the word running for office, uh, definitely toying with it and, and seeing uh, if it 
you know, if it was a real possibility in some ways, he was almost approaching it. And I thought of this reading your book in the way that I think Eisenhower approached running for office, which is like, you know, basically if nominated, you know, I will run. Well, I'll, I'll tie that together. Uh, Eisenhower in the early 50s, when especially after the Minnesota primary unexpectedly just went for him, Reagan, even in his autobiography, says he wanted the people to come to him. He didn't feel comfortable going out to seek the office. The office seeks the man. And his campaign actually began within three weeks of him becoming governor-elect of California in November of 66. He assembled his first meeting uh, and his campaign team of a small cadre of individuals who would run the campaign, go out and seek delegates nationally. And it ran for two and a half years all the way through August 68. And very quickly, it was determined that in 1968- August 68 is the convention. Correct. So it was not as virtually all other historians say, it was a few days effort at that convention and it was a waste of time. It was a foolish move. That's not true. It began in November of 66. I document all the multiple meetings. I interviewed at length his campaign director and all about 30 other individuals who ran his campaigns in the critically important primary states for the Republicans in 1968, which was Wisconsin, Nebraska, and Oregon. And those individual stories have never been told before. Historians, when you think of 68 and the few Americans who may recall that era, it's the Democratic side. Sure. Bobby Kennedy, uh, uh, the, the main figure, uh, and of course, uh, Lyndon Johnson. But the Republican side, it wasn't just Nixon automatically going to get the nomination. Reagan was building momentum. He was going to be California's favorite son, would have a huge number of automatic delegates. And their plan was to, to get his head above water in Wisconsin, which he did. He got about 11% of the vote. He made a big effort in Nebraska. They made a campaign film called uh, Governor Reagan. And he really espoused not only conservative small government talking points, which wowed audiences wherever he spoke, uh, and people hadn't seen Reagan before. And compared to uh, Nixon, they viewed Reagan as a major winner. So, so uh, that goes back to Eisenhower, as you mentioned, Nixon, because of course, Nixon was Eisenhower's <laughs> vice president. Um, Nixon, everybody expected uh, uh, to run it. He did run in 68, right? He was the expected nominee. Um, what did Eisenhower see in Reagan that somehow he thought uh, he would support him over his former vice president? You attribute a lot to what uh, Reaganites refer to as the speech, the time for choosing speech, uh, which really launched uh, uh, Ronald Reagan uh, political life uh, in 1964, the speech where he was advancing a failing Goldwater campaign. Well, two years earlier, a all but forgotten to history GOP marketing recording was created called Mr. Lincoln's Party Today. I discovered it. It hadn't been described by any other historian. And in it, brand new Republican Ronald Reagan is approved by Dwight Eisenhower to narrate this critically important record. Eisenhower speaks about small government. Reagan does too. And he uses words that um, 
Uh, I, I call at one point, uh, he delivered on that record a house divided speech, sort of a follow up 100 years earlier from, from uh, Lincoln's. He, he compares uh, the, the free West to communist uh, uh, controlled areas. The world cannot exist half uh, slave and half free. And Eisenhower then mentored Reagan. When Reagan was deciding uh, after he no longer was the host of GE Theater, whether to enter politics or with, through a mutual golfing buddy, he sends a request to Eisenhower for political advice as to what steps should he take should he decide to enter politics. And the next day after Eisenhower hears from the golfing buddy that Reagan is making this request, Eisenhower pins a very thoughtful multi-page letter of seven specific steps that Reagan should take should he decide to enter politics. Reagan not only follows that um, step by step, that becomes the entire basis of his gubernatorial campaign. In that letter, three times Eisenhower uses the term common sense, of course, from the American Revolution, Thomas Paine, and Reagan makes that his campaign theme. Uh, Eisenhower does a lot more. He helps Reagan during the campaign twice fight false charges of anti-Semitism. He endorses Reagan, contributes to him, does a lot more that my book goes into. Yeah, but, but, but Eisenhower but sees Reagan as I think his natural heir, especially in the area of foreign affairs. Well, because, in, in the sense that Reagan needed the mentorship in foreign affairs and, exactly. and one who had more experience and, and, and certainly it's clear from- And, and let, me, let me just add a little if I could yeah. that in 1967 in May, there's an international debate on Vietnam with Robert Kennedy. Reagan represents the Republican Party, does a wonderful, masterful job. Bobby Kennedy does a horrendous job. Even the far left media says Reagan won. Republicans at home see this man, Ronald Reagan, who a few months earlier had won the governorship of California by almost a million votes. They say next year in 68, we don't want another Kennedy-Nixon debate fiasco. We want somebody new, and here's Ronald Reagan. And no, that's, that's a good point, but I want to go back to the, the critical point that's argued in your book, which is non-intuitive, is yes, it makes sense that Eisenhower would want to mentor and bring along this promising political figure. Right. And that's well argued and, and um, sourced in your book. The point I want to get at is, on the Eisenhower side of the house, what would Eisenhower have done? Or what did Eisenhower do to choose Reagan over Nixon in 68? I mean, what, did it ever, what was, did it come he to that? that. He, in January of 68, he, Eisenhower was interviewed. I call it the golf buddy interview. And he is right away asked uh, this summer at the Republican convention, who's the man most qualified? on the Republican side to become president. And he said, unquestionably, my former vice president, Richard Nixon. But then he adds, but that may, is not necessarily the man I would recommend to become the party nominee. I want the person who could win and beat at that point, Lyndon Johnson. Right. And he is, then, then the discussion switches to Vietnam and they go through the other potential candidates who are very much against winning the war. It's Ronald Reagan who in all of his speeches and press conferences after mentor, being mentored on Vietnam by Dwight Eisenhower, it's Eisenhower and Reagan who are the only two public figures who actually wanna win the war. And the reporter then asks Eisenhower, so is it Reagan who you're going to favor? 
he demurs. He does not answer, which is not unsurprising because his grandson is dating Nixon's daughter. And how can he immediately who, turn who away from his vice president? Marries, who he ultimately marries. Exactly. No, but, but the point I'm trying to get to is, in your view, it seems pretty clear that Eisenhower would have picked Reagan over Nixon. Maybe he couldn't share that to the world. Maybe it would have been not politique, but that's what he wanted. I, I think he did, but he realized come July that he just had to endorse Nixon. Nixon comes finally to ask for his endorsement and Eisenhower gives it to him. And what choice does Ike really have at that point? Nixon is clearly the front runner. Reagan is still running the stealth campaign, but by the time of the Republican convention, more Republicans had actually voted for Reagan than Nixon, but he does give him that endorsement. And when Reagan is asked, what do you say now that former President Eisenhower has endorsed Richard Nixon? Reagan says, well, that's all well and good. Ike is a great American, uh, but it, well, let's see what happens at the convention. Um, I mean, it was just too cute. When you read about what, 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 what the Reagan folks were doing, it, it, it didn't seem that it, it was going to be a winning strategy when you don't have a candidate forcefully saying, I'm running for the nomination. And, and, and I mean, it's pretty clear that was I mean, Achilles heel kind of under. under exactly. And that's the lesson he learned for both 76 and 80. You can't be a stealth candidate. You can't say, uh, you know, the, the people have to come to me. He has to go out and seek the nomination. So I, you mentioned the Kennedys and, and, and in your book, somewhat not intuitively um, um, in the title, it says Reagan's 1968 dress rehearsal, of course, is the title of the book. Um, and it talks about Ike, Reagan's emergence as a world statement, but it's Ike RFK and Reagan's emergence as a, as a world statesman. And that, that's the part that kind of caught my attention, the RFK part, how, how just never struck me as a consequential figure. You referenced before this debate over Vietnam, uh, which everybody can watch on YouTube if you just put in the Reagan RFK debate. Uh, I watched it after reading your book. Uh, fascinating. Um, you actually go into depth in how the Kennedy team and LBJ as, as well viewed um, Reagan as this threat and actually uh, start, start to, to weaken him. Uh, in, in part, I think it was the LBJ folks um, uh, had the FBI after Reagan. Um, they tried to, um, uh, they interfered with his GE contract. Tell me, tell us more about kind of the, the, the dirty, dirty play involved here and how they were trying to discredit and undermine Reagan long before he was the GOP standard bearer. There's a lot that I go over that is none of which is my original historical research. I cite other authors, but Reagan's main political foe in the 60s is indeed Robert Kennedy. People just don't, as you allude, don't associate Reagan and Robert Kennedy, but he is there throughout this, this time period. And he uh, uh, was involved during the uh, SAG MCA trial where Reagan was uh, uh, called as a witness. And then as attorney general, he, uh, the two Kennedy brothers through a project they termed the Ideological Organizations Project um, went after conservative groups. Uh, RFK arranged for the IRS to audit 10 years of Reagan tax returns he, he, he was clean as a whistle. And uh, he was just Reagan's political nemesis. At the gridiron dinner 
in uh, shortly after Reagan becomes uh, governor, again, he's running for the presidency. Robert Kennedy bests him uh, the, the main time that they meet. But a few months later at this internationally televised debate on Vietnam, they are not in the same studio. Right. Reagan clearly wins that that is a major impetus for the campaign, but it continues way beyond that. And I'll just highlight two things. Reagan's campaign was stuttering in the early spring of 68. But once Robert Kennedy announces after Eugene McCarthy, uh, basically, he didn't win the New Hampshire primary on the Democratic side, but garnered enough votes that LBJ then announced he's not going to seek reelection. Bobby Kennedy comes in. A lot of people on the left say he's a usurper. That galvanized Reagan's campaign to get reorganized to make a push because there's no way Ronald Reagan and his team ever wanted to see Robert Kennedy in the White House. And Dwight Eisenhower had felt the same for a long time. And very likely, in my opinion, RFK was discussed during the four golf cart meetings, uh, multi-hour meetings that Reagan and Eisenhower yeah. had. And then after the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, Reagan has a very heartfelt, um, uh, I can't say eulogy, but comments about that. And then shortly after, during 1981, after the Reagan assassination attempt, it's the 15th anniversary of the assassination of Bobby Kennedy. President Reagan invites the entire Reagan clan to get a Congressional Medal of Honor because Jimmy Carter, the former president, didn't, would refuse to do it because he hated Ted Kennedy so much. Well, Reagan had the warmth and grace to bring in his political enemy to heal those old wounds. Um, uh, one more about the, the Eisenhower-Reagan relationship and then a little bit more on the so-called stealth campaign and, 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 the, and how you do that and the actors involved, you know, a chapter in the Reagan uh, uh, history that uh, is often not explored or understood. But it, it's intuitive that Eisenhower and Reagan would be aligned on foreign policy. Eisenhower, of course, defeated fascism and was the architect along with Truman of how we would uh, defeat and deal with communism, the spread of communism. Reagan, of course, was the most prominent conservative anti-communist you know, throughout his time uh, in public office, certainly prior to the presidency and then during the presidency. So foreign affairs makes sense. On domestic policy, not so much. So Gene, was this something that Eisenhower was just willing to tolerate and Okay, he has his outlook and I have mine, but I like that he's, you know, we're aligned on foreign policy. Or is it your view that actually uh, Eisenhower was generally viewed as a, you know, a big, bigger government Republican, Reagan the opposite, was something they'd agree to disagree on. I mean, there were a lot of Eisenhower vetoes and Reagan tends to highlight those you point out in your book, but that seemed to be more of a convenient answer than, than a true answer. Well, a wonderful loss to history. Eisenhower speech is at the very beginning of this Mr. Lincoln's Party Today book. Eisenhower lays out his basic political philosophy. He believes in small government. And he says all issues and problems should be solved by local government first. Only if local individuals and government can't solve it, should it be done at the state level. And only if state can't do it should as a last resort be brought to the federal government. 
And he says his opposition always starts by solving problems or trying to at the federal level. He disagreed vehemently with that. And I think that speech of Eisenhower on that same recording made a deep impression on Ronald Reagan because that almost with the same exact words is what Reagan uses two years later in a time for choosing uh, and many speeches thereafter. So I think Eisenhower is misunderstood as a, a, he was a centrist from a lot of points of view, but his deepest philosophy was he was a Republican believing in small government. That has been ignored by history. Well, I mean, it's also what happens during the presidency and the, the deals he was willing to make and, 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 and what happened on spending during his time in office. And I think that's what uh, folks generally uh, look to. So, I mean, the, the speech you're pointing to, is, and it's pretty uh, consequential link you've made uh, when you, if you're looking at the time for choosing speech and the influences and where the ideas came from, um, uh, that, 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 that's quite important. The other side is that there are uh, uh, people who argue that Reagan was a new dealer and remained a new dealer even after he left the Democratic Party. And to that extent, there might be alignment in terms of uh, Eisenhower and Reagan in terms of more centrist and certainly not this uh, small government by all means. Well, uh, other, let me pick up on that. Other historians have said that Reagan's role model was FDR. Uh, from my research, I found no evidence of that during this period of, of Reagan's. So I went to the search engine at the Reagan Library, which reviewed every single presidential speech, uh, public comment, press conference comment, and I tabulated and I made it as a table at the end of my book. How many times did Reagan cite prior presidents in any of his public utterances? And you would think if, Reagan, if FDR was such a great role model, he would have cited him a lot. He only cited FDR about 55 times during those eight years. The prior president, even Calvin Coolidge, who historians view as a role model, he didn't cite very much. The prior president who he cited the most was Dwight Eisenhower, his mentor. Yeah, well, it was also a Republican. And, 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 right. and uh, you know, if you think about it, you have to go, you, you, you weren't going to cite Nixon, who was a part of rival, certainly a discredited right. president. So who do you go back to? Who's the one, the most recent president to reference? I mean, you do have Reagan saying something to the fact of you said in the book that he wasn't trying to undo the New Deal. He was trying to undeal, uh, undo, excuse me, LBJ's great society. So there, there and was- that's from Reagan's diary. And, and yeah. that theme is very clear throughout all of these speeches uh, during this time. All right, well, we, 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 we won't, uh, further indulge in this debate. Let's let's talk about the, the 68 uh, Republican nomination. Tell us about the players involved uh, and understand who are the stealth, uh, who are the organizers of the stealth campaign. But in terms of those seeking the nomination, you have Nixon, you have Rockefeller, you have Romney, of course, not the Romney in the Senate today, but uh, his father from Michigan. Uh, give us a bit of that dynamic and then why he was even a credible uh, notion that you could have a stealth uh, campaign and, and win the nomination. Well, as as you you mentioned, these were the other players. The uh, on the liberal Republican side, George Romney, Nelson Rockefeller, and on the conservative side, Ronald Reagan. Uh, in fact, this uh, Lincoln Party today uh, talked about the wide political tent of the GOP that could accept these divergent players. There was a lot of talk that Nelson Rockefeller, the governor of New York, who had been in office, of course, much longer 
the new governor of California, Ronald Reagan, would be a natural to be president, uh, a presidential nominee, and thus bring in Ronald Reagan as vice presidential nominee. Actually, Dwight Eisenhower was very much against this. He said this would just be viewed as political expediency, never have a ticket like that. A few people speculated, why not have Reagan at the top of the ticket and Rockefeller at the bottom? That didn't go anywhere. And of course, not helped at all by Reagan's public constant denials that he was truly running. Romney, uh, he actually had been the front runner, but made this uh, a, a fatal comment that he had been brainwashed on Vietnam and his polling quickly evaporated. And that was the end of his campaign. Um, Romney, uh, excuse me, Rockefeller uh, was there too, uh, but also was not viewed as a major threat to Richard Nixon. My book makes the point from uh, comments uh, of others and other analyses. And I think that Richard Nixon viewed his main threat as Ronald Reagan. During the spring 68 three primaries that I allude to, uh, Nixon had done some visiting to Wisconsin, to Nebraska and Oregon. But think, I think he assumed he had them all so, sewed up for him. However, once Ronald Reagan visited multiple times and released the movie, Ronald Reagan citizen governor and it was shown on local television stations in those three states. Richard Nixon for each of those states had a sort of dash out to shore up support. Uh, and he thought there was a Reagan juggernaut that would stop him, especially he got 11% in Wisconsin, 22% in Nebraska, the campaign Reagan's campaign had hoped he was going to have enough votes to win Oregon. Unfortunately, Reagan and his, his advisors made, a, in my opinion, a foolish decision not to visit Oregon itself. He did visit neighboring Idaho and his campaign team flew into Idaho to meet him in person. Uh, but uh, Fred Van Natta, a very wonderful still living gentleman in Salem, Oregon, was Reagan's campaign direct, Western States campaign director. And he and the still living overall campaign manager, Tom Reed, in Napa Valley admitted to me that the fatal mistake was having Reagan not visit Oregon. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Tom Reed and, and uh, fascinating. He's written a book about that, yes. 1968. Uh, Much of that research was done by me as he does acknowledge in the front. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so the back of your book, you have, you know, quotes from George Schultz and Ed Meese, you know, Pat, Paul Kangor is well known, Craig Shirley. But Tom Reed is there, who is not well known, and, and many know him as someone who served in government in the Reagan administration or the Nixon administration as Air Force Secretary. Um, this is a bit of, of a kind of chapter in his life, um, which doesn't get as much attention. Did he want to run a stealth campaign? Did did Tom Reed truly believe that that, or was it just something he had to deal with because that was Reagan's preference? Tom Reed and a, a number of other people watched the time for choosing in 1964 before the Goldwater loss. They were all uniformly electrified saying, my goodness, this is the man who should be running. Tom Reed and others who formed the nucleus of students for Reagan and many others uh, wanted to see Ronald Reagan sitting in the White House and did whatever they could uh, at the time, Tom was working on the Goldwater campaign, in fact, was with Barry Goldwater in the very last day 
in Arizona looking at the sun go down um, and had that campaign experience. Tom was set up to help in obscure places with Goldwater like Rhode Island and other places. So he had political experience and uh, contacted Reagan and he was hired uh, as, as um, gubernatorial staff, his appointment secretary. Mm. Uh, and there was a plan that after 100 days he would stop that, he would resign and sort of then, I can't say go into hiding, but he, he basically did. He set up in, in his Northern California offices, the true Reagan presidential campaign office. Everybody was trying to find it in Sacramento. It wasn't there. So reporters assumed there was no such campaign and uh, others said, no, it was just somewhere else. They didn't look. And that's where he advised Reagan on what to do Every weekend that Reagan did not have gubernatorial duties in Sacramento, he flew to give speeches mainly in those three primary states. Those speeches and press conferences are what I listened to. And the archivist at the Reagan Library, when he sent me those audio tapes, said, Gene, my goodness, I've worked here for more than a quarter of a century. You're the first person who's ever asked for them. So it was a thrill for me to hear brand new Re Ronald Reagan speaking right. on all these subjects that I no one has ever heard him speak about. The Tet really Effective, really the USS Pueblo, et cetera. Um, but you know, when you talk to Tom Reed, you get the sense in his book, it kind of spares out in his book, is that he felt that it could have worked, that, that Reagan called it off prematurely. Um, and someone was bitter by it. You know, it feels like it, 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 it just didn't have to turn out that way. Tell, tell me more about uh, that. Yeah, well, actually, I would say the opposite. Uh, and my book goes through, through Tom Reed, my, oh, my multiple interviews with Tom and Tom's uh, campaign schedule and uh, uh, all the meetings he had with Reagan, that it was actually the reverse, that it was Tom Reed who said at about three points, it's over, uh, Mr. Reagan, uh, Governor Reagan, we should give up. And Reagan said, no, I want to continue. Uh, specifically after the Robert Kennedy assassination, because that was going to be Reagan's main rationale. I beat uh, Robert Kennedy in the debates, uh, uh, and I therefore can be the winner, unlike Richard Nixon. Once Kennedy's assassinated, Reed says, it's time to give up. But Reagan says, no, I'm going to go forward. And they changed the campaign theme to law and order prior to Nixon doing that. Uh, so Reagan actually continued. Did he have the drive as he had, would have in 76 and 80? No, um, because he felt he was too new. He just was governor for, for a little more than a year. Um, two more points. And before we get to our, our, our closing round, we've quickly consumed our, our time for this conversation. Uh, I think that you spent a bunch of time on in your book and it, it was true during uh, the period of, uh, of, of, of his time as governor and, 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 this stealth run for the presidency and then played out uh, throughout his time in office and the, into the presidency is his interaction with students. Uh, even the debate with, even the debate with Kennedy, these are students asking him questions, you know, from London you know, and collected from around the world in London. Um, talk about the significance of, of Reagan um, appealing to students and his comfort interacting with students the trips he makes and the conversations he have. You talk about a trip to Yale. You talk about other campuses where there were there were lots of people there and times that there was only a handful. 
Why is that so significant? And what did that kind of reveal to you about Reagan as a as a politician uh, uh, and, and a chance for success? Well, he, thank you for bringing the subject up. Uh, I interviewed a lot of the people who became students for Reagan, an offshoot of uh, uh, Young Americans uh, for Freedom. And it, it, it started at a convention of theirs where Reagan, after his a time for choosing, was just a rock star. Uh, polls were done where he far placed higher with the young than, than Nixon. Nixon didn't even show up to that convention. And it was at that point where he began these several visits to universities, as you mentioned, Yale, Nebraska, Colorado, Arizona. And he would make two great points that are so relevant to today. He, he, he told professors, you're not here to indoctrinate students to the left point of view. Your role is to give students all different points of view and let the students decide for themselves. Because at that time, when the announcement was made at Yale that Reagan was going to be a guest lecturer for a year called the Chubb Fellowship, there were people like today who said he should not be allowed to speak because he was a conservative Republican who wanted to win in Vietnam. But Yale honored its, its obligation. Actually, there were a few leftist professors who's, who, who at that time realized what free speech was. And he, his, as president, his popularity among students was even higher than as high as it was with adults. And groups started patterned after Youth for Eisenhower, Youth for Goldwater. There were high school students for Reagan in 66. There were students for Reagan at the college level that then morphed into students for Reagan in 68. That was on multiple college campuses. They had conventions, ID cards, book sales. And this group showed up at the Miami Beach Convention to help Reagan in any way they could. They, they, they would come early to rallies with, with placards promoting Reagan. And when Reagan loses, they leave the convention hall very, very much dejected. A group of them I interviewed until a limousine pulls up and the window comes down. It's Governor Reagan. They're thrilled, but they're real, really upset. Reagan says, guys, or, they were not all guys. They were, they were women too, uh, one I interviewed, saying, don't give up. I will be back another time. Keep your hopes up. I will run again. And that created such a huge positive impact. And of course, that's what happened. Um, one other uh, slightly minor uh kind of discussion in the book, but significance really to me, and I I never uh, focused on it. So take a minute on this one, is when you're talking about the Reagan outlook, uh, particularly in foreign policy, how those views uh, developed during this period, obviously Eisenhower, as you argue and, and demonstrate, was critical there. You also say that the seeds for the so-called Star Wars program, the Strategic Defense Initiative, uh, missile defense and the use of space to defend against ballistic missiles was something that didn't begin when President Reagan uh, took office in 1981, but actually its roots go back to this period as well. Um, tell us more a little, uh, about that and, and, and how did uh, Reagan become somewhat fixated and captivated by this notion of uh, ballistic missile defense and, and, and what would become Star Wars? Thank you, I'd, I'd love to tell you. 
Reagan is mentored, as you mentioned, on Vietnam, Korea, World War II by Dwight Eisenhower. They discuss strategy and tactics, how to win in Vietnam. However, other issues are now occurring in, in 1967 and 68. In September of 67, he flies to seek the endorsement of Senator Strom Thurmond. Thurmond's autobiography is coming out, being edited by Lee Edwards, who everybody knows is the premier conservative historian. In Thurman's book, having a missile defense shield is always paramount. The same week that Reagan lands for that meeting, Life Magazine has a cover story on the new um, anti-ballistic missile shield that the US proposes, not to help us prevent attacks from Soviet Union, but against communist China. Why? Because the Soviets have too much, too many missiles. All we can do is try to help ourselves against communist China. They meet, uh, I, I'm sure they discuss that. And then next month in Seattle, he's asked by a reporter, I hear this on the audio tapes that no one else has listened to. He's asked about, are we spending enough in space on military weapons and defenses? Reagan says, no. And he then says, I've been reading everything I can about space defense and missile defense for the United States. The next month, he arranges a visit to the Lawrence Livermore Labs Before and spends a half a day right. that physicist Edward Teller is working on our first missile defense shield. Teller in subsequent interviews said Reagan was spent hours listening. He asked very, very thoughtful questions. And then in July of 68, the ABM treaty with Moscow was being debated, uh, basically saying that America will stop any work on an ABM shield. Right, and so the one ballistic missile treaty, right? This is the idea right. that uh, right. it would danger uh, us if we had this, this, this shield. Um, we would advantage one side more than the other, and then it would put this kind of mutual assured destruction at risk. So the idea was you wouldn't have this treaty, we'd be safer. And that's something Reagan, of course, vehemently opposed. Right, as did Edward Teller, who testifies before Congress and Reagan speaks out at press conferences, again, which I listened to, uh, and Reagan says, no, we, you know, Moscow has this huge ring uh, of anti-ballistic missiles and we can't do this. And he calls them the enemy. It was just as if it's the evil empire speech 15 well, years earlier. What I found so fascinating about that is it's one of the earliest uh, uh, records of, of Reagan advocate, advocating for strong national defense, increased defense spending, and of course, uh, this notion of, of, of missile defense. Right, uh, Roger, that, and that's the theme ultimately my conclusion. The man we know as president was there all along in the 60s, but nobody listened to what he said paid attention, even knew that he spoke out well, was, on these issues. Was that they were listening, they dismissed it outright or just had right. their narrative that he, he was uninformed, not sophisticated, uh, and not, not really thought through on these subjects that everyone expects a president to come to office uh, kind of with a, with a seasoned uh, uh, set of policies. Uh, let's jump to our lightning round. This has been a fantastic conversation. Again, Dr. Gene Kolpeson, uh, fantastic. Uh, discussion around your book, Reagan's 1968 dress rehearsal, right, the so-called stealth campaign. This is the part of the podcast where we ask you for your favorite book about Reagan, your favorite speech about Reagan, and your favorite Reagan quote. We know 
uh, our favorite Reagan book today is, is your book. So give us another oh, one. Uh, and, I really uh, like Paul Kengor's book on Reagan and communism. Uh, he's one, one of the few other authors who actually has listened and cited some of the speeches that I get into more depth about. Um, uh, I really enjoyed that as, as uh, helping with my own research. Um, my favorite uh, speech. Favorite speech. That you know, I'm biased, of course, as a as a new historian to the work I've done. The classic works everybody knows about. I think this house divided speech is just wonderful, and and I hope somehow we can get it out to the public. That uh, yeah, house divided speech you're telling us before is a precursor time for choosing speech. Exactly, it happened two years earlier. Uh, he says the world cannot exist half slave, half free, and that problems should not be sent to an intellectual elite in a faraway capital. You, you have to solve problems locally. And that, of course, is the same thing Eisenhower is saying on the same record. Uh, yeah. And of course, becomes his main political philosophy. Well, great. You have done something no, else, no one else, I believe, has done on this Reaganism podcast, point our attention to a speech prior to the time for choosing speech in 1964. Give us your favorite Reagan quote. You just gave I'm going to give you two. Reagan no. didn't say for the first time, uh, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. On that international Vietnam debate on May 15th, 1967, Ronald Reagan says that we should knock down the Berlin Wall. That's the first time in public Ronald Reagan says it. History has ignored it, but I'm sure your ears picked it up when, when or, or, or your eyes picked it up when you did that YouTube. I'd encourage everybody to watch that. And also in July of 68 in Amarillo, a reporter asks Reagan, um, how did he get into politics? What is he hoping to accomplish? And he says the one time he acknowledges Eisenhower, he says Dwight Eisenhower was the inspiration for it. Uh, never recorded by history, except on one of these audio clips uh, from the library. And, and that's my favorite quote, other than knock down the Berlin Wall. Well, appropriate that should be your favorite quote, given you've done more work than, than anyone on this Eisenhower-Reagan relationship. Dr. Gene Kolpelson, thank you so much for being on the show uh, and for the great contribution you've made to Ronald Reagan's legacy. Roger, thank you so much.